primary care knowledge boost, heavy menstrual bleeding. Hello everyone and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Um, today we have an episode for you that's um, all about heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, we have the fabulous Dr. Anne Connolly um, who's come to chat to us about it. Um, she is a GP um, with a special interest in gynae, um, a really long history of working um, in women's health and um, she gives us her insights about, um, about this topic. Yeah, it was fantastic to talk to her. Um, We kick off the episode by talking about the importance of talking about heavy menstrual bleeding and other women's health problems in terms of raising awareness and uh, how important it is and how under uh, underappreciated it is in terms of the impact that it has on women's lives. Um, Then we go through cases to illustrate some points. So we take a case where it's quite straightforward and talk about management of heavy menstrual bleeding. And then we go through a case with slightly more risk factors for more concerning features around heavy menstrual bleeding to talk about some of the differentials and potential ways of managing managing different patients. So we, we think you'll get a lot out of this. Yes, we'll be back at the end with our learning points, but um, we hope you enjoy. Uh, so would you mind introducing yourself for us and just explaining a bit about about your current role? Uh, thank you for asking me to join you today. My name's Anne Connolly. I'm a GP with special interest in gynaecology based in Bradford. Uh, and for many years, I have been a hysteroscopist doing diagnostic Uh, procedures and treatment procedures in the outpatient setting. I've also been paid for lecturing and for consultancy by a number of pharmaceutical companies uh, and further information about that can be found on www.whopaysthisdoctor.org. Fabulous and thank you so much for talking to us and we were connected through the wonderful Uma Marthe um, and you're fairly well known for your talks on heavy menstrual bleeding really in in GP circles um, as well as other aspects in gynaecology. Um, So First of all, I think we wanted to just kind of gauge the the reasons, really. What what is it about this topic that that's made you focus on it? So heavy menstrual bleeding is extremely common. Somewhere between about twenty and thirty percent of women will have heavy menstrual bleeding between the ages of thirty and fifty. So it's very common. Uh, it's very unreported, underreported. So women tolerate it for a long time. They don't really realise whether their periods are heavier and, and often it comes on so insidiously so uh, the you know one month will be a bit heavier than the other and then a bit heavier and they might have a lighter one so they don't really realize the impact that it's having but it can make women's lives very difficult uh, so for some women particularly those in some of the lower paid jobs where they can't get to the toilet in time so if they're working in a factory or working on a on a on a shop floor in a supermarket, it's very hard for them to take the breaks they need to. Uh, so it has a real impact. But you know, as as many women's health problems do, they have an impact on women. But then they have more of an impact on probably those who have the least opportunity to make the choices. And it's just so common. Definitely great orientation, um, and thank you. And um, we thought we'd approach this um, this chat kind of a case based way, um, so that we can kind of get some more uh, inject some of the reality into it about what women might actually be experiencing. So we have our first um, lady called Maya, um, and she's thirty seven, um, and she's come in for heavy menstrual bleeding. And she tells us that her periods are regular, um, and they've always been heavy, really. But for the past six months, she's noticed they've been getting gradually worse. 
She's now starting to flood at work and she's having to take time off. Her periods are about seven days in length usually and it's the first four days that are particularly heavy. Um, And when it's heavy, she needs to change her pads and tampons every two to three hours and sometimes they do soak through. Um, She doesn't have any intermenstrual bleeding, no postcoital bleeding, um, no dyspareunia and no discharge. Her periods can be painful in the first few days, but it's mild, she says. Um, She's in a same-sex relationship, not on any contraception, and she's up to date with her smears. She's not symptomatic of anemia at the minute, um, but she has been anemic in the past and has had iron previously. Um, And otherwise, um, she just has asthma um, and takes inhalers for that. So having heard her kind of initial complaint, what are you thinking? What would be your initial thoughts about Maya? So... It's really important to take a very detailed history like that. So you can try and work out uh, a sort of risk profile for the management, the investigations, and actually how much more you need to do uh, with a case like that. So it's really important to understand what the pattern of the bleeding is like. Exclude any abnormal bleeding, uh, as we have done there. So no intermenstrual or postcoital bleeding, because the management of those will be different initially uh, to think about her sexual health risks so thinking about discharge uh, pain during sex you know issues like that so just get a good clear history uh, from uh, Maya because every woman is very different and we need to do a risk assessment just like we do when we're doing cardiovascular checks diabetes checks you know we've got to think about this woman what are the risk factors How much do I have to do? Because we do a lot of unnecessary tests, actually, in women's health, uh, and then think logically about what we need to do. And NICE have a very clear pathway on how we manage uh, women with heavy menstrual bleeding. The other thing with Maya, obviously, is to think about the impact this is having on her life. And as we've discussed, you know, she's having problems at work. And it's really hard when women have those monthly problems because she may need to take a few days off work um, and she's not going to come to us for a fit note because we'll say well you haven't taken you know you don't need it for more than seven days but the problem is she needs that every single month and then she runs into problems at work or does she just have to take leave every month or does she go part-time or actually does she get sacked which is occasionally the the issue so we're building up this picture just like we do in primary care all the time we're looking at Maya we're thinking about medically what we think could be wrong but also we're supporting her with her with her you know, the issue the impact this is having on her life so with someone like Maya we've checked that we're happy with the bleeding pattern it is heavier but we've checked we're happy with the bleeding pattern we've checked that she's up to date with her smear which is a really important point and looking at other things like could she be pregnant could she be taking hormones that could be influencing all of this and we know with Maya that she's not the other issue so the other issue is that we're, we're thinking about has this been a lifelong issue because if it's been a lifelong issue and she's always had heavy periods and she's had problems with bruising or a family history or you know, those other things that might make you think that there's a clotting disorder because if it has then we need to be talking to our hematologists now, someone like Maya, she said, they've, they've been heavy, but they've become heavier. And she doesn't have any of those other issues about bruising, etc. So we won't do the unnecessary clotting tests. That, you know, we, we're presuming she hasn't got something like von Willebrand's disease. So 
We then have to think about Maya from a risk point of view. So she's not got an abnormal history. Now we're going to think about the risk factors for endometrial hyperplasia, endometrial cancer. So that would be intermenstrual bleeding uh, or an abnormal pattern to the bleedings we've said, but also about herself. Is she obese? Does she have diabetes, polycystic ovary syndrome? Does she, uh, has, has she not had children, which actually she hasn't? Um, other risk factors are over the age of 45, which she's not, um, and uh, tamoxifen, uh, estrogen only HRT, which she's not taking. So we're thinking about mine, we're thinking this is a woman who has is, is low risk uh, for endometrial disease. Um, so we're happy enough to exclude that side of things. The other issue I might want to know about would be, do I think she's got any pressure symptoms or anything consistent with fibroids or a pelvic mass? Um, and so I'd ask her a little bit about, does she, has she changed you know, her urine frequency? Does she feel any pelvic pressure? And if she says no to those, I've now got a normal woman, one of a very common number of women we get, uh, who um, I'm just going to treat her for a heavy menstrual bleeding. So nice say um, we don't actually need to we don't need to actually examine her at this point. You know, I tend to put a hand on the abdomen, um, but unless I'm expecting any pelvic findings, I don't do a VE routinely because, you know, it's not really going to add any value to this. Um, and then from the investigations, the only investigation we really get told to do for everybody uh, like Meyer is a full blood count because of that insidious onset of anemia that comes. And I've seen women with haemoglobins of 40 who just over every month they've dropped the haemoglobin a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more. And they've learned to live with a really significant anemia um, because they've just thought, oh, I'm getting old. Uh, I'm just getting a little bit more tired. So full blood count is really important on everybody. If there was a pregnancy risk, certainly do a pregnancy test. If there was an STI risk, you know, have a low threshold for doing STI tests. And if she hasn't had a smear, make sure that's done. But full blood count would be the only one I'd be doing for, for Maya. Uh, and then getting on with treating her. So no further investigation. She doesn't need a scan. She doesn't need a gynae referral. We can just treat her. What about thyroid tests? So it's interesting, isn't it? We, we, get, we often get uh, confused about thyroid tests. So NICE do say sometimes consider doing a TFTs, but really to be to, for 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 hypothyroidism is what you're looking for to cause um, heavy menstrual bleeding. She would have some other signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism, um, and it's very likely she'd be oligomenorrheic, so not have regular periods. So you could consider doing it, um, but I, I wouldn't routinely if there were no other symptoms suggestive of that and no don't you know don't waste your money on hormones don't bother with fsh lh estradiol you know they're not going to give you any added value full blood count is the most important test yeah brilliant so sorry i interrupted you you were talking about you're going on to the next stages really i think so you covered investigations so management management where we go next uh, so once I'm on the flow, um, I get going with this. So yeah, brilliant. <laughs> so management, you know, we're going to be thinking of management in three different groups. The one to really start with is hormonal management, and then there's non non hormonal management or surgery. So that's how you're going to separate your choices. From a hormonal point of view, obviously they're contraceptive. 
which uh, Maya uh, doesn't need, um, but she's still going to decide whether she wants to use hormones or not. Nice rightly tell us that the 52 milligram levonorgestrel into uterine device uh, is the best option. Um, it's the most successful um, and it's the most straightforward uh, and with the lowest risk uh, and reversible should she you know, want to have children. So the levonorgestrel into uterine device, and we have to use the 52 milligram one, that's licensed for heavy menstrual bleeding management, but also the one that will give good benefit. The lower dose into uterine device uh, systems uh, are good for contraception, but not for heavy menstrual bleeding management. You could use the combined hormonal contraception and use it back to back, but you'd have to do a risk assessment to make sure she was okay with that. Um, Depo-Provera. Uh, is another option it doesn't really have a license or a recommendation but we know that lots of women will become amenorrheic with that progestin only pill sometimes some people use double dose the progestin implant isn't really going to make much difference then the uh, non-hormonal options the best is tranexamic acid uh, and use tranexamic acid at the dose that's going to work and so you're going to be using a gram three or four times a day the trick with tranexamic acid is to get it in before she gets into that big flow so try and get it in as soon as the bleeding starts rather than waiting for her to have her heavier periods uh, any of the NSAIDs naproxen is as good as any um, is going to be so reduce the bleeding by a certain amount it's not going to be as good as tranexamic acid um, but it's good for pain and also you can use the two together. Ibuprofen may have some effect but probably not quite as much so naproxen would be my choice. From a surgical point of view you know if she's sure that she doesn't want to have children at any point because you can't have children after endometrial ablation uh, that would be the uh, preferred uh, surgical option. Endometrial ablation it burns off the endometrium uh, and some of the superficial layers of the myometrium um, and stops gland regeneration. End of the road, hysterectomy, um, big surgery still, higher risks. Uh, and so we are recommended to use the non-hysterectomy options first. If she uh, is going to choose to have an intrauterine system fitted and you can't do it there and then, um, or she wants to go away and think about what her options are, um, then give her some tranexamic acid to help. Don't leave her with nothing. So give her some tranexamic acid so at least she gets some benefits over the next couple of months. That's a really important point. Uh, one of the other options that we have, apart from the contraceptive hormones, is the use of norethisterone or medoxyprogesterone acetate. Um, and it, it does remind me to talk about that. So when we, we often use norethisterone uh, to either stop bleeding or to uh, delay periods when people go on holiday. Um, but north, norethisterone at the dose of 5 milligram TDS actually is very, it has estrogenic properties, even though it's in the BNF as a progestion, it has estrogenic properties. Um, and so at 5 milligrams TDS, it's as potent on a venous thromboembolic risk uh, as a 20 microgram pill is. So um, I've completely moved away from norethisterone. I haven't used it for years now. Um, and if I do use a progestogen 
uh, on its own, I'll use medoxyprogesterone acetate, which is purely progestogenic. Um, it's licensed for 10 milligrams a day. That might not be enough. You may need to use 10 milligrams BD or even 10 milligrams TDS. Um, but that has no estrogenic properties at all. So it doesn't increase the thrombotic risk. Well, that's really interesting. Again, it's just reminding me of the sort of realities of trying to prescribe it and trying to counsel women on what to expect next. Um, say like um, for Maya, we were prescribing it and she wanted to go ahead with something like um, the medroxy progesterone acetate. So if we're counselling her on using that um, and say like we're just going for, it's, she was saying, can I just maybe delay or stop the next period uh, until I think about maybe having the IUS or just see how that suits me. Um, how long might you prescribe it for and what would you expect to happen with her period? Um, so you can give it indefinitely. It's, we, it's used for cancer prevention in women who've got endometrial hyperplasia and it's used indefinitely pretty much. Um, it does make people a bit ratty, so she might not choose it in the longer term. Um, but she could take 10 milligrams nightly for as long as she wanted. or And then if she had ble- bleeding, up it to 10 milligrams BD. It's got a shorter high half-life, so you can't get away with a single dose at night. Um, and if you do just take one a day, then take it at night because it's a bit, um, it, it helps, it's a bit sedative as well. So it's better be, to be taken at night or certainly the high, higher part of the dose at night. And then is it a sort of unpredictable equation in terms of oh you'd expect your periods to get or your bleeding pattern to get lighter it's a bit like the progesterone only pill where it's a bit of an unknown entity in in terms of how it's going to affect the bleeding um you'd hope that it would stop so once you get the dose up the ambition is it stops um and then when she stops she would have a bleed so you know if you look in the bnf it's ridiculous it says something like day 19 to 26 which everybody knows doesn't work but that's what its license indication is so you do have to have that conversation about this being unlicensed so you could say well you could do it for you know day five to day 26 is a fairly standard dose and do that for a few months and then people will have a bleed um and a controlled bleed um or you could just keep giving it until you know there's no problem with continuous hormones these days. Um, would it work as a, a contraception if it was needed? A good, good point. But the answer is um, uh, it should do, but you wouldn't say that. Yeah. Okay, good. Lovely. <laughs> Perfect. So if they're looking for contraception, definitely one of the other options is preferable. Uh, exactly, yeah. I was just going to check um, if you would um, naturally follow up um, Maya or would you put the ball in her court at that stage if you've come up with a plan and ask her to come back if um, she was unhappy I would let I would ask her to come back if she was on you know have an open door policy um, come back if this isn't working go and have a look at this information and actually on the nice website they've got a heavy menstrual bleeding guideline it's ng88 um, and in on there there's some patient information. I think it's under the tools section uh, and it's a shared decision making tool. And it's got all the information about the different methods and the outcomes you'd expect and the side effects you'd expect. Really useful to signpost women to so that they can go away uh, and, and sort of see a balanced chart of what all the pros and cons are and the, the anticipated out, uh, outcomes. Um, and also it shows sort of like the progression 
So you'd usually start with this if that's if you don't want to have an intrauterine system, you can start with this and then you know move through, or if you didn't want surgery yet, these are the options. Really useful tool. It's great to have a stepwise plan. Yeah. Um so we thought we'd do a slightly different case next, if that's okay. Um next case is Mariam. She's 48 and she's come in with a very similar complaint, so very heavy periods. Um she is a bit worried about them because they used to be regular, but now they're sort of getting quite complicated she can't predict them it could be every three weeks or every five weeks uh, and they're lasting longer so they used to be sort of shorter sort of five six days now it's seven to 14 days um she feels like they're worsening over the last few months she's getting really tired and actually she's really struggling just with her tiredness um and they can be heavy for particularly the first week of it and she needs to change her pad again once every one to three hours. Sometimes she gets clots um, uh, as well. Um, she can get inst- intermenstrual bleeding as well. Um, however, she's not getting any postcoital bleeding and she's not getting any dyspareunia. She's had no new partners and there's no um, vaginal discharge. Uh, she's gravid three uh, and she's been on the progesterone only pill for contraception for the last four years. She's up to date with her smears and they've always been negative. Um, she has a past medical history of type 2 diabetes and she's on metformin and dapagliflozin for those, for that. Uh, her body mass index is 32. So she's a bit of a different case, essentially. Um, so with Marion, what, what are you thinking here? Yeah, so this is a completely different case. And as we said, you've got to look at the patient and think about the risk factors and then decide how you're going to manage Um, She's got a few risk factors there, hasn't she? She's over the age of 45. Um, She's got diabetes. uh, Her BMI is over 30. And she's got the intermenstrual bleeding. So all of those are, we need to do more with this lady. We need to investigate this lady. So you're going to do the same things. You're going to think about pregnancy. You're going to think about STI. You're going to think about compliance, actually, with a pill. Um, you've got to think about a smear, but we've all we've had all of those. From, we've looked at those in the history, um, and then we're going to be thinking about this woman might have some sort of gynae pathology. Um, and from gynae pathology, we're thinking about could she have with the intermenstrual bleeding as well? Could she have an endometrial polyp? Could she have a submucosal fibroid? Uh, and more concerningly, with those risk factors, could she have a an endometrial hyperplasia, uh, which could in time progress to cancer? So uh, she needs investigating. Now, NICE rightly tell us to do a full blood count. Um, and then they tell us ideally that she needs endometrial assessment and the endometrial assessment is best done by the hysteroscope. So a direct view with the hysteroscope um, and you can then see the endometrium. You can do a see and treat procedure if there's a, a small polyp or a fibroid. Um, and you can take directed biopsies if there are certain you know, abnormal findings. So that would be the ideal. Now, you probably wouldn't fast track her, although you'd want a fairly urgent one. At the moment, some of the hysteroscopy waiting lists are up to a year. Um, yours might not be in your area, but there's a real concern that some are very long at the moment. Uh, so you've got to decide. You, you don't really want to leave her for a year. Um, but you would probably be asking for something fairly urgent. She wouldn't necessarily be fast-tracked. And don't forget, again, before she leaves the room, 
you're going to be thinking about giving a, some tranexamic acid, really. That would be your best choice here, some tran tranexamic acid to help her while she is uh, waiting for her, uh, her appointment. Lots of people would still do an ultrasound scan. Um, again, lots of ultrasound scan waiting times are very long. If you are going to refer for an ultrasound scan, and I have to say it wouldn't be my choice, but if you are, um, then it would be best to warn her that the, the transvaginal scan is going to be the better one. She'll get a pelvic one, but they will also want to put a probe inside the vagina. It gives a much closer look at what's going on in the ovaries, but also what's going on on the endometrium. And it's a good heads up to warn her about that before she goes, because otherwise she gets to the, uh, the outpatient department and the, the sonographer wants to put something in the vagina and she's not expecting it. So you know, give her a heads up. The problem with uh, ultrasound scanning is if you get a cystic appearing thickened endometrium, you know, you know that that's abnormal. But often you'll get back a report that says the endometrium looks slightly thickened, 13 millimetres, you know, and it means nothing because 13 millimetres mid-cycle is, you know, okay, Bit, a bit thicker than you'd want, but it's okay. 13 millimetres uh, just after she's finished the period is very abnormal. Um, so you don't often find when the scan was done in time with her cycle. So you don't really know how best to read that result. Um, so if you want somebody to look at the endometrium, you're much better going for a hysteroscopy than an ultrasound scan. But I do recognise that some areas are saying you have to do a scan first. Some areas are saying, well, waiting time is so long, we're insisting you do a scan. Very complex. Yeah, that is difficult. Um, would you say then, though, that people shouldn't be um, reassured by what might appear normal on, a, on an ultrasound scan? Because um, I think that would be my concern there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If she's got those factors, it could... The, the other issue with her is that she is perimenopausal. Um, and lots of women perimenopausally get abnormal bleeding. Firstly, the cycle tends to shorten and then it tends to get longer and then it will stop. But she's got the risk factors, plus she's got that intermenstrual bleeding, which really, you know, is not normal. Um, so an ultrasound scan, it would be awful to give her a falsely reassuring result, as you say. Uh, so where scanning is useful, however, is if we think somebody's got fibroids. And when we're doing that history, if they're talking around, they've got uh, some pelvic pressure feelings or fullness, or um, they've got uh, problems going to the toilet more frequently, and you think there may be some pelvic issue there, you've certainly got to be excluding a, a significant pelvic mass. Um, but if you think, well, that might be fibroids causing the heavy menstrual bleeding, that is where an ultrasound scan is useful. So if you're looking for histological problems, think hysteroscopy if you can. If you're thinking structural problems, think ultrasound scan is probably the best way of, of recommending what to do there. And definitely for these types of cases, if there's sort of risk factors that I'm concerned about and it's a really quite unreassuring history, um, but they're not quite fitting with the with the urgent cancer referral pathway. Um, we've got nothing in our area that would kind of you know that we could go for something reasonably quick that would 
um, that would reassure us in terms of getting a, seen by gynaecology. It would it would take over a year. Um, so I don't know. Is it? Have you got any advice about who and when to refer patients on an urgent urgent suspected cancer referral? Um, f- firstly, I, I do agree. In certain areas, they, they, there are the option of urgent and uh, fast track as separate. Um, in theory, all gynae departments ought to triage the letters so that they themselves will put them into different categories. Uh, right now, there's a bit of problem in hysteroscopy clinics because they're full of women bleeding on hormone replacement therapy because we've suddenly had this massive increase in use of hormone replacement therapy. Um, and then there's been a big panic in women who are aged over 50 on HRT and being fast-tracked. So the clinics are very full at the moment on the back of uh, longer waiting time still recovering from COVID. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult situation. Um, you know, the treatment of endometrial hyperplasia, to be honest, is an intrauterine system. Uh, or the early the, the early changes are, um, but you know you would really like a diagnosis before you randomly put one in. Nice have clearly moved us away from the use of random pipels or un, un, you know, undirected biopsies, blind biopsies, um, because you may miss something. But again, some places are doing that because they recognise that on balance it may be better than nothing. Uh, so and, and at the end of the day, you know, if you're concerned and you're worried that your waiting time is going to be a year, then you fast track. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, it's not your risk to take. So if the hospital system is not coping, then actually at the end of the day, you're sitting there in your clinic with your woman. Um, so fast track It's what we do all the time, isn't it? It's just that kind of how to, yeah, it's a, the system's not quite working. So, yeah, it's kind of making sure that... Yeah, not taking too many risks with people, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, we did have a follow-on question about this, actually, just about how to manage patients. So with the waiting list being, uh, for for routine gynaecology being so long, um, for people who aren't as risky, um, do you have any advice about who might be still appropriate to refer on to gynaecology and who we should be trying to trying to manage in general practice so with heavy menstrual bleeding it's really you know there are three groups of women there's your younger woman or or the woman who's had lifelong problems that's a hematology problem generally and that's what you're going to talk to hematologists about then there's the group who you think you don't have risk factors like the first case we had there but you may also have a thin fit and healthy 48 year old um, who you can equally manage. And you may have a very overweight 30-year-old who you would who you would refer earlier because her because her risk. It's, it's an individual thing. You can't say cut and dry. You've got to look at the woman and think, do I think you've got risk factors? The other case that we, we see a lot of, and I know you will see a lot of, um, is polycystic ovary syndrome. And that's really where the younger women come in. So polycystic ovary syndrome, very common. Uh, It's about having signs and symptoms of hyperandrogenism, spots, hair, male pattern, hair growth. It's about having infrequent or no periods. 
and then a cyst's appearance on scan, a polycystic's appearance on scan. Now, the problem for polycystic women is that they don't ovulate, and so they have a lot of their own circulating oestrogen. And if they're not having periods from six months to six months, they've got a, a risk of getting a thickened endometrium because they're not ovulating, so they're not making any of their own progestogen. So younger women... Um, who are, and they're often overweight, so they've got more uh, circulating estrogen from their obesity, plus they are often insulin resistant, so again, it's another risk factor. So although I've tried to put it into the, you know, this is the younger woman, this is the middle-aged woman, this is the older woman, if you've got a polycystic ovary woman, you do have to think, am I worried about your endometrium if she's not having periods from you know, through six months to six months. And with there, particularly with endometrial hyperplasia, we've got a big opportunity at all ages to think about protecting the endometrium. So the use of progestogens generally, uh, is either on a regular basis or on a cyclical basis, uh, will really protect the endometrium. There's a, there's a good prevention arm we can do there whilst trying to encourage women to reduce their own risk factor, which is usually their weight. Um, there's a few questions that arose as we were going along and I'm sure there's things that you get asked quite a lot have you got any practice points or things to watch out for from your experience or things that you get asked often any other sort of practice pointers that you'd like to tell us (laughs) Um, women's health generally is very undervalued very underreported very under uh, women don't they don't know that it's not right and for me, practice nurses are the key for women's health because they are the ones that women will often test out their concerns with. You know, are my periods bad enough that I need to make a GP appointment? You know, the press tell us there aren't enough appointments. So people think, oh, it's not, it can't be that bad. Oh, I can't bother the GP. Um, so, I, I, but they'll test it out with our nurses so my first tip is your nurses are the key always for women's health. Um, education resources out there are bad. Uh, it's very hard to find a decent uh, resource on heavy period management. Patient.info uh, is improving, but it's it's still got a long way to go. Um, and we know that education in schools, they're meant to be getting better with women's health, but they're, they're not yet. Um, the other one is about fitting into uterine systems certainly in England with the uh, fragmentation of commissioning uh, we've had a real problem with getting into uterine systems fitted for heavy menstrual bleeding Um, and there's lots of work going on at the moment to try and improve the access for um, intrauterine systems between practices shared resources shared fitters so that we can try and improve access because it's ridiculous that a woman can have a coil fitted by an expert for this but not for that so you know just, just think about in your practice have you got a fitter or a neighboring practice and can you uh, work with your commissioners about getting better access and, and you've mentioned quite a few good resources as we've gone along, and um, but do you have anything else specific that you'd want to point to for either clinicians or for patients that's quite useful? Um, so great, thanks. So I, I, I've just resigned my position as chair of the Primary Care Women's Health Forum. Um, this is a, uh, and it's where I met, where Uma, where I met the lovely Uma Marty. 
Um, the Primary Care Women's Health Forum has lots of resources on. It's written for primary care by primary care. So it's written for nurses, for pharmacists, for doctors. We, we make practical, pragmatic resources from the guidance. So we'll do 10 top tips for this or how to guide for this or and lots of webinars. Um, have a look at the resources because we've got a whole suite of resources on managing heavy menstrual bleeding. There's one on how to take a history. There's what there's an e-learning on there. Um, and there's also a really neat little guide for counselling about treatment choices. Now, patients can't access it because it is for healthcare professionals. But as healthcare professionals, you can all access those those resources. There are a few resources behind uh, paywall, um, but the majority of the work on there is free. Uh, and if you've not seen it, please have a look. Fab. We can definitely link to that. That's great. And then we ask all of our um, our guests as our final question, what you would want um, the listeners to take away from the entire chat today if they only go away remembering a couple of things um, from listening to the episode, what would you want those to be? Well, thanks for asking me to do this um, because I think it's so important and so undervalued. Um, don't forget the impact, the impact of heavy menstrual bleeding or endometriosis or menopause or incontinence or PMT, you know, the impact of hormonal problems on women is undervalued, underestimated and underreported. So that's the first one. The second one is the majority of management for heavy menstrual bleeding we can do in primary care. So just think, can I manage this woman? Am I worried about her risks? Do a full blood count. And if not, then just get on with giving her some sort of treatment or signposting us, and if you can't fit the interuterine systems, then you know tell her, where, tell her where she can go, because most of this is us to do in primary care. Oh, thank you so much, Anne. That's an absolutely brilliant message. I feel like we've empowered a, a very, uh, like you say, an, um, an area that's been under undervalued. It feels very empowering. So yeah, thank you so, so much for your, for your talk and your time. So Lisa, we've we've just finished speaking to Anne. Um, what are your learning points? I think it was just um, it was such so, so lovely to hear her speak. Um, wasn't it, Sarah? You could tell that she had a wealth of experience and knowledge behind her, and that she has um, done this a million times. Um, and it was just fantastic to be able to glean that that from her. Um, I think I just kind of appreciated her her straightforward structures for everything um, she kind of had that well we need to look at the risk profile when you're thinking about the questions you're asking what's the risk profile for doing investigations and then what's the risk profile for management and then when she got to management she had the well there's hormonal non-hormonal and surgical um, and broke it down really clearly um, and just made it seem so accessible um, and and made these patients feel a lot more easily managed um, and investigated, to be fair. Um, so, yeah, I think that was my biggest takeaway. Um, what about you? Yeah, I think um, it's the pleasure of talking to someone who's so comfortable and knowledgeable about their sphere that they can talk really quickly about weighing up those risks and be quite comfortable managing it when it's quite a straightforward case. So, writing the case the initial case I thought you know it's kind of the classic where it's like it's so straightforward it makes you comfortable but even then it wasn't you know for me as a sort of more junior practitioner seeing someone with heavy bleeding where the pattern's a bit worse even without many risk factors still makes me uncomfortable especially if they're worried that definitely translates to me and I'm somebody who 
does do quite a lot of um, examinations and ultrasound scans. And I think, you know, it, it is about comfort level. Um, but I just found that really interesting to see somebody who knows this um, field so well, just being more comfortable. That felt more empowering, I think, to be to be assessing risk and to, to be more confident assessing risk. Yeah, definitely. And her thing about um, she's she knows the systems aren't working very well. So the pragmatic um approaches to to doing the the right thing for patients you know if if um if they need investigations or if they need if they if there are worrisome risks then using the systems you know so that so that patients are getting seen in a more timely fashion if if there are concerns and i think yeah the other um the other big thing that uh just rang rang through was um about uh the impact um impact of these things on women's life uh, lives um, and how important it is to ask about that um, and to find out um, how debilitating it is for them um, and and thinking about the fact that it isn't just the sim- this one symptom that they come in with actually it probably is having a huge impact on how they're living their life um, and and they probably won't necessarily give you that information off the bat so it's probably quite important to ask about it um i thought that came through from what she was saying her management um options and and how she uses medications i thought was really uh, really good to hear the kind of nitty-gritty of of doses and licenses and off license use and and what to expect from those treatments and don't you know make sure that it's somebody who's suffering isn't leaving the consultation room without without an op- a treatment option if there's something that that's appropriate to use yeah Re- I, oh I, I love the resources i'm going to use them that'll be really good to look up the um the uh, primary care women's health forum decision making tools and as she said there's something on nice where you can link to it so we'll make sure they're all in the um resources section of the episode description but yeah um they're, they're going to be really helpful just because it's a really long conversation or it can be a really long conversation and you want to make sure it's uh you know informed consent and people know what the options are that's really important so yeah really 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 useful yeah so we hope you get a lot out of that episode and um feel free to drop us a line if there's any feedback uh, that you wanted to share with us and if you're enjoying the episodes that um the feedback forms are there for for you to let us know it's always really lovely and please share this with friends or colleagues or uh, if you're a trainer with with your trainees or if you're a trainee with your trainer or in appraisals we get some feedback around that and that's really lovely so thank you very much for to everyone who's doing that um, till next time on primary care knowledge boost This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in 2023. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewees' opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast.